Welcome to Crawl Space. Here is an interesting episode we've got tonight for you. We're talking about two new cases that we are about to dig into. Not sure how deep yet, but we're going to dig in. I'm Tim. I'm here with Lance. How's it going, Lance? It's going very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Unfortunately, we don't have Chloe tonight. Um, she had some technical difficulties, but we will have her back. This episode of Crawl Space is brought to you by the exciting new game, Hunt a Killer, and also our favorite blue apron. We will be hearing from both of these a little bit later. Dare I say that this is a special episode. This is a, a turning point episode, a turning to the next chapter. We will still be as in-depth as possible covering the Brianna Maitland disappearance. But what we're doing now is introducing the listeners to what Crawl Space really is, which is multiple cases that we will be looking into, digging into as deeply as we can. And this will continue for the foreseeable future. Just so you know, we do have three very exciting interviews in the Brianna Maitland case that are coming up. So you may not hear anything about Brianna Maitland in the next couple weeks, but we will be back with a vengeance. And trust me, this is apple tree shaking material that we're going to bring. I'd, I'd say coconut tree. Coconut tree? I think, yeah, I think we're going to, I think it's shaking it pretty hard. Apples fall off pretty easy. Coconuts take okay. a little time. Yeah. Okay, you heard it. He Come after Lance if you disagree. And as far as the iTunes reviews, we want to thank everyone who gave us a five-star review. At the end of episode four, Stranded, we mentioned that we were going to send you some swag if you gave us a five-star review. Uh, we really appreciate all the all the five-star reviews. It's, it's really fantastic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, who said that? What? Who said we were sending... sending... <laughs> believe you did. What? Uh, Lance, believe you did, Lancey Pants. <laughs> that sounds... That doesn't sound like me at all. It doesn't sound like me to, 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 to bribe. I'm not into bribery. Well, either way, we have to send out about 75 care packages of a uh, notebook, a pen, and a – what is it? A bookmark or a uh... – it's a, it's a notebook, a mouse pad, a pen, and a bookmark. Oh, wow. Look at you guys. You're really making out. Yeah. It's your amateur sleuth podcast listening to Detective Kit. Right. So, uh, unfortunately, if you give us a five-star review right now, that's very welcome. So please do that. But our little promotion where we're going to send you some free stuff for that is over. The way to collect that, though, is to take a screenshot or even just send your username on iTunes to our email address, crawlspacepodcast at gmail.com, and give us your address. We will send something out as soon as we can. And there will be many more opportunities to earn or to receive these uh, gifts as well. So hang in there if you really want that and haven't gotten it yet. Lance, we're about to tell our audience about the greatest invention to happen to online sleuths, to amateur sleuths. The audience of this show is going to love this product. I got to tell you, when I got this product and I opened it up and I said to you, I just said to you, this is the last thing but the greatest thing that I want to have happen in my life because I am going to get obsessed with this. So we wanted to take a second to tell you guys about this new subscription box service called Hunt a Killer. Maybe you've heard about it, but people are obsessed. 
Hunt a Killer sends a package to your home each month full of creepy correspondence from their killer curator. He's a little like Hannibal Lecter, and he's got a mystery for you to solve. Each month, you'll receive new clues, letters, articles, objects, tools, all adding to an ongoing murder mystery. It's up to you to solve it, along with thousands of other members, all working together in the online communities. It's the perfect thing for an armchair detective looking to put their sleuthing skills to the test. You can join by logging on to huntakiller.com and applying for membership. Hunt a Killer is growing so fast that they have to limit new members to 500 a week. Once you apply and you are approved for membership, you will receive a private link to subscribe. Then a package arrives at your door each month. Waiting is the hardest part. They're limiting members to 500 a week because it's taking off in, at such a pace. They've been featured in BuzzFeed, Fast Company, and Bustle. Hunt a Killer is forming a cult-like community of web sleuths and amateur detectives. If you love poring over creepy codes, ciphers, clues, Hunt a Killer is simply perfect. And if it's not for you, I we have a feeling you know at least at least one. But if you're listening to this podcast, you know at least one person who would love to receive it as a gift. I know tens of thousands of people who would. I cannot recommend this membership enough. To help support our show, Hunt a Killer has offered a 10% discount for our listeners, which is tracked to this message. So please use code CRAWLSPACE and get 10% off. That's CRAWLSPACE when you sign up. Check it out now. You are going to have a blast with this. Trust us. Okay, so let's get to these cases. First case we're going to talk about tonight, and this is sort of a mini intro to a full episode that we're going to do very soon. This case is one that you and I, Tim, had had talked about for about a year now, maybe a little bit longer, as we were thinking about cases to do for Crawl Space. Something happened recently that put it right in the forefront, and we decided we couldn't put it off any longer. It's the mysterious case of the missing and dead young men of Boston, Massachusetts. Now, I mentioned earlier that this case has been put back onto our radar, and that is because on Wednesday, March 29th of this year, 2017, a young man by the name of Michael Kelleher attended the Boston Celtics-Milwaukee Bucks game at the TD Bank Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. At 9 p.m., he was seen leaving the building. CCTV footage records him with a cigarette in his mouth. As of this recording, that is the last known whereabouts of Michael Kelleher. He did not arrive at his co-worker's car after the game ended. And we truly hope that the story of Michael Kelleher does not become what is now one of modern America's urban folklores. Since 2003 in Boston, the number of young men, students, and professionals, military men, and musicians who are either missing or found dead in water is nearing an alarming rate. With few exceptions, these men are in their 20s. On March 16, 2003, musicologist, author, historian, and professor of music at Boston University, John Davario, was seen leaving his campus office at approximately 8.30 p.m. He was carrying a white plastic bag, possibly containing a book. He was not carrying his briefcase or wallet. 
His body was found almost a month later pulled out of the Charles River. The cause of death has been ruled accidental. The bag has never been found. And then the pattern started. Exactly four years later, a petty officer and engineer in the Navy, Dustin Willis, was stationed in Boston during blizzard-like conditions. Dustin's friends, his father, and his girlfriend all swore that he was sober that evening. His shipmates lost sight of him in the blizzard conditions. And while his girlfriend was on the phone with him, the call was cut short. Dustin's phone was found at 1 a.m. on the ground near the Long Wharf, but there was no sign of Dustin. Four days later, Dustin's body was found in 22 feet of water, steps away from where his phone was found. And most of these missing men have been happening in the past few years. It seems like the pattern really picked up the pace around 2007 and became something that was almost a yearly or every other year event. While John DeVario was technically not the first and Dustin Willis was technically not the second, there were ones in between, but as as I researched this, I started to see that the pattern began between those two men. The exactly four years later for Dustin Willis stood out to me. In between, we have Daniel Munn and David W. Crockett. Before John DeVario was Gerald Gelb, who was 44. David W. Crockett was 45. And then the pattern of young men begins. Lance, a lot of these places I've been to, I'm pretty sure you've been to too, where uh, I'm from Massachusetts, you're from New Hampshire, but we both lived in and around Boston for most of our lives or a good amount of them. The Bell in Hand, uh, the Black Rose, these are all bars that I've frequented probably with you actually too. Yeah, I had I have I have friends who are in bands who play right on that strip, the Bell in Hand, Hennessy's, uh, that Faneuil Hall strip. Uh, it's a big party area, especially on the weekend. Doesn't matter Friday, Saturday nights, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. It's a it's a big it's a big area where a lot of activity is going on. I've been in that area in 2004, in 2006, in 2007. I'm sure I've been down there on a Friday or Saturday night in that time period. And we were young twenties at that period too. I was like 40, but. <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah, we we were in that age group, and I've walked in the there's there's the case of Dustin Willis who left the bar on St. Patrick's Day. He was a a Navy officer. He was an engineer in the Navy, and he he was stationed. Their their ship was docked in in Boston Harbor, and he goes out with some of the some of the Navy crew, and they go to the Black Rose. You've been to the Black Rose. I've been to the Black Rose probably right around 2007 when when Dustin was there. We've left bars after having a few beers in the snow. Maybe not blizzard-like conditions, but that that's a story where he was with his friends. He was with people who knew him and who trusted him. He They trusted each other. He was on the phone with his girlfriend. And he's, he's walking in the snow, blizzard-like conditions. They lose sight of him. And he's on the phone with his girlfriend at 11 o'clock. The phone, the call is cut short. They find his phone at, at one o'clock in the morning and his body is pulled from, from Boston Harbor, right off, right off a long wharf. You and I have been in these situations where it's snowing. Yeah, but we don't, I don't leave bars when my friends are there and I just go, 
wander off. And, and, and some of these are without their phones. A lot? Or without their wallets. Yeah. So a lot of those make me automatically assume that maybe there's something mentally going going on. Like that person is having a, tar- a tough time. They're not thinking straight. When you do look at certain ones and the young men leave the bars, they go outside without their jacket. It's typically winter and cold. They're going outside for a cigarette. The bartenders don't let them back in because they determine at that point that either it's too late, they don't let anybody back in, or the person has had too much to drink. And then the the young man contacts somebody, either contacts a girlfriend or a cousin who's in the bar through through Snapchat and says, hey, they're not letting me back in. Zachary Marr, who disappeared on February 13th, 2016, was found in the water by the Museum of Science on March 15th, 2016. Zach was gone by the time they came outside after they saw the Snapchat. But according to CCTV and bouncer statements, Zach never asked to come back inside. So what's that all about? I don't know how you determine that. I haven't seen the CCTV footage, but I don't know how you would determine that. I've, I've seen I've seen a still of it uh, from the inside. And I don't know how you determine exactly what is said between the bouncer and, 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 and Zachary Marr. Um, I could see how a bouncer just wouldn't remember. I mean, you're dealing with a lot of kids. You're dealing with a lot of drunk kids and perhaps not wanting to say something that was was untrue or speculative a bouncer could have said i just don't remember him asking me to come back in of course but cctv if that still that we're looking at is the angle from cctv footage i i don't know how you could tell if if he's turning towards a, a bouncer to the left or to the right uh, maybe this bouncer's out of sight. Maybe he's not talking directly face to face with somebody. Maybe he goes outside and the bouncer's standing to his left, out of out of sight of the uh, um, the door, like the the window. It could be it could be a number of things. Furthermore, he sent the Snapchat at one forty. At that point, well, bars are about ten to fifteen minutes away from calling last call. No, they're not letting you in at that. Exactly. Point. Zachary could have been the the 150th person to ask that bouncer to go back inside. Instead of wait for his friends, he just takes off within three minutes, and CCTV has him walking past Boston Public Market, heading in the direction of the Boston Garden and the Zakem Bridge. Without a jacket. And Right, and police later found CCTV footage of Zachary entering the water. We don't really know what that means, though, entering the water. Yeah, let's 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 break it down into some people are going to say, you know, this is semantics, but does entering mean slipped and fell and entered or does entering mean stepped into? I know that it's been determined an accident, so I guess accident makes me think slipped and fell and in, into the water. You know me. You know me. I don't want to draw conclusions. I don't want to immediately go towards something that's fantastical. But what are people doing walking away from their friends and family with no jacket in the dead of winter, somehow making it down to the water? You and I have walked that. I mean, you said walking in the direction of the Zakem Bridge. That's not it. It's not really an easy walk. And and a lot of people say, well, they're drunk and they stumbled in. You can't really stumble all the way down to that area. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you, if you're stumbling, you're stumbling around Faneuil Hall. Exactly. There's so many places to... There's benches, there's lawns, there's a lot of places you can just kind of stumble around and meet people, things like that. Even if you wanted to be alone, you could be alone somewhere there. What happened in those four minutes? Trying to get into the head of, of someone, uh, you, know, you know, back to 22, 23 years old. I mean, you've, you and I have, you've gone to bars. I've gone to bars. You and I have gone to bars together and left after several beers. And it, there's still something that, that says to you, you know, this isn't the right thing to do. If you're, if you're getting behind the wheel of a car or if you're walking in such a, like, strange direction away from your friends and family, you look at John DeVario. This this was a celebrated. He was a second person who went missing and and turned up turned up dead, pulled out of the Charles River. This was a celebrated music professor. He'd written books. Uh, he was a uh, he he was to say he was an expert on Robert Schumann is an understatement. He he had written books on Robert Schumann. He was a a world renowned expert on 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 this composer. The only thing people could come up with for John DeVario was that he was depressed because his parents were getting ill. John DeVario was 48 years old. His parents were getting ill. They were, they were getting older. He was taking care of them. He, he loved his job. He loved his students. He loved music. He, 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 this was an active man. This wasn't somebody who wanders off and falls into the river, but he was. He left his office, left his brief, briefcase, left his wallet, was carrying a plastic bag that might have had a book in it, which was never found. And then they pulled him out of the water about a month later. And we can get We're going to get into all of these guys. We're going to get into all of these guys as much as we can. We definitely need to sort of put some of these cases into categories of uh, fishy conclusion or something that sounds like it was suicide. And, you know, if we privately come to those decisions, that, that maybe that's better. Um, because if, these, if this is being grouped as one case, we don't want to leave any of these people out because all these people are real. These families are real. These people died. How about Daniel Munn, the 20-year-old student from MIT? He went missing on December 5th, 2003 at 4 a.m., his roommate mentioned he didn't seem stressed or sad before his disappearance. Not, not unusual, even if it is suicide. But Daniel's body was found under the ice near the Harvard Bridge in March of 2004. He was wearing rollerblades. So that means that he tried to rollerblade on the frozen water. The circumstances around his death is very similar to the other the other the other men who are found in the water that he may have been intoxicated at the time other at 4 a.m rollerblading on on frozen water does suggest that you're you're you might be intoxicated at the time and his roommates said that he didn't seem sad or depressed or, or stressed or anything so this could be one of the cases that strictly an accident and now he's part of the folklore. Yeah, but he's from MIT. It's like, okay, that, that's an accident. 
but I've never heard of someone rollerblading on the ice. I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's there are people out there listening that they have probably done it. Additionally, that's the Charles River, and December fifth. It's 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 the winter, I guess. I mean, technically, it's not the winter, but in New England, it very well could have been uh, a cold day. It could have had we could have had snow by then, but it it. It has to get really cold for a really long time for the Charles River to freeze. So there was ice there, but I can't imagine that ice. I can't imagine an MIT student looking at that and thinking this is a good idea, unless it was a dare. And that was just a little bit of the missing and dead men of Boston. But now we turn towards a different mystery one from 99 years ago and it's actually from lance's hometown of jaffrey new hampshire it's the murder of dr dean i remember finding this book by bert ford on the bookshelf of my house i was probably nine or ten years old and i opened it up and it was old it was 1920 and it had my grandmother's name written in it, uh, property of Blanche Burgoyne. And I think that might have been the first book that was an adult book that I'd ever read in my life. It was so old, it was, and, and so homemade, self-published, that it was, uh, it, it had writing just on one side of the page. And it looked like the other side of the page, and I have it still, the the other side of the page looked like wallpaper. And uh, I remember reading that when I was, like I said, I think about 10 years old. The story is in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, on a hot night, August 1918, at a time when the country was patriotically and emotionally involved in World War I, the respected citizen, William K. Dean of Jaffrey, was brutally murdered on his farm. Back then, there was good reason to believe his murder was directly connected with the war since there were federal agents, FBI agents, in the area investigating alleged signal lights and spy activities. And the signal lights were coming off of Mount Monadnock, which is, to this day, the number one climbed mountain in the world. Mount Fuji at one time held that position, but you can drive up Mount Fuji. You can't drive up Mount Monadnock. It's a wonderful hike and a wonderful area. Now, there were alleged signal lights coming off of Mount Monadnock, Pack Monadnock, Gap Mountain. Some say were shining signal messages from the mountain ranges, Mount Wachusett, down to German U-boats in Boston Harbor. Spy activities. Dr. Dean had told someone he had very important information he needed to give to them. He told a woman on his property the day before his body was found that she needed to go back to Boston to her home. She was a a vacationer in Jaffrey, and he told her she needed to go to Boston and contact the men she knew at the FBI and have them send up their best man. And the reason we're talking about this is because it's a mystery. No one knows who killed William K. Dean. A lot of people have 
thoughts, ideas. I'm sure Lance has some because uh, in addition to reading that book when you were 10, you wrote articles about this case when you were in high school. But you're not alone. There is a group of people in the very small town of Jaffrey, New Hampshire called the Dean Murder Research Group. And there's about a dozen of them. And by the time you hear this, we will have conducted interviews with almost all of the members of the group. Now, are any of these members of the Dean Murder Research Group descendants of people who were involved in this mystery? When I look at the names of all the people in the Dean Research Group, I realize that a good number of them are descendants of people who were around at the time that William Dean's body was found. I'm just trying to get to, are any of these people that we're going to interview, are they emotionally invested to the point where they would refuse to believe, say, their relative or someone like that could have committed this heinous crime? I think it's entirely possible that if we dig deep enough and we work with the Dean Murder Research Group, anyone who does have ties family ties to those involved with the murder itself would definitely be hesitant. It was something that divided a town, polarized it between Protestants and Catholics, between those who were suspected to be German sympathizers and those who were expected to be patriotic Americans at, at the time of World War One. Back in 1918, Jaffrey was a small village if you want to picture it that way. It was situated right under Mount Monadnock, had the Kentucky River flowed through it, and this is something that came along and, and really divided the town and took generations to bring back together. And ironically, the Dean Research Group is making a move and raising money to build a theater in the center of town where the old movie theater used to be. And when I say old movie theater, I mean in the in the 50s. The old movie theater has been torn down. They want to build a stage theater and have productions there. And it's scheduled to be hopefully completed next year. So on the 100-year anniversary of the Dean murder, they hope to premiere a play about the case, which I find incredibly, wonderfully ironic. And that something that so divided a town, both politically, religiously, could somehow, even though there's no resolution, have such a positive impact. And somehow bring the town together a hundred years later. Almost like tying it back together. No pun intended with tying because Dean's body was found, tied up, bound, potato sack over his head. That was not a bad joke. I do have bad jokes, but that wasn't one of my bad jokes. At this point, I have no opinion on who murdered Dr. Dean. I know that there are about three theories that most people sort of sort of gravitate towards. And we'll get into those. Uh, Lance obviously does have preconceived notions about this. So let's hear what you say about that. With the research I put into the case, I do have my own theory on what happened. And I believe it falls in line with several members of the Dean Murder Research Group. 
the three main theories being German sympathizers ambushed by hoodlums in his barn and a scorned lover, his wife, believe it or not, is one of the one of the theories. And when you look at those and you start to eliminate certain circumstances, you're left with, albeit circumstantial information, but a very logical conclusion. Well, how are you how are you omitting the guy who was found with a black eye and lied about how he was found with a black eye? And per- so l- l- hold it. Just hold it till next time. Thank you very much for listening to Crawl Space. We will be back in two weeks with more. Follow us on Twitter at CrawlSpacePod. And hey, you know what? Give us a five-star review on iTunes. You're not going to get any swag this time, but just do it out of the goodness of your heart. Maybe you'll get some swag. At some point, you'll get some swag. And let's hear the sweet sounds of Fritz Weatherby talk about this case for about two minutes. If you haven't heard of Fritz Weatherby, the guy's a legend. The melodic, the melodic vocal tones of Fritz Weatherby. In August of 1918, many people in Jaffrey claimed to have seen flashing lights from the top of Mount Monadnock. It was assumed that these flashes were signals to German submarines in Boston Harbor, telling of troop movements from Fort Devens. A Jaffrey resident, one William Kendrick Dean, claimed to have knowledge of these signals. On August 13, he sent word to the Justice Department in Boston to have them have someone come up and see him. That night, he was brutally murdered. The crime has never been solved. Dr. Dean lived with his wife, Mary, in Jaffrey on a hilltop overlooking both Mount Monadnock and Pack Monadnock Mountain. During a visit from his neighbor, Mrs. Horace Morrison, the 64-year-old gentleman farmer, discussed the lights that he had seen flashing from the mountains. Mrs. Morrison was traveling to Boston the next day. Dr. Dean asked her to stop in at the Justice Department. Have them, he said, send up one of their best men. He had some information for him. Mrs. Morrison did as she was asked, but Dr. Dean never lived to tell what he knew. The next morning, his body was pulled from a fresh water cistern on the land. He'd been hogtied and strangled, his skull fractured. A horse blanket was wrapped around his neck to staunch the flow of blood. A 25-pound rock was trussed up against his shoulders, and a gunny sack pulled over his head and tied with twine in square knots to his belt loops. To this day, the crime has never been solved, although the selectmen of Jaffrey and the U.S. Justice Department and others who investigated the crime always felt that Judge Charles Rich of Jaffrey was at the scene at the time of the murder and knew more than he was telling. The story of the murder was written up in the Boston American, and later it was published in book form from the articles. The story is most interesting, but it never reveals what Dr. Dean knew about the lights on the mountain. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. 
Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.